Well, welcome to Patriot Podcast. Uh, shout out to Allison, Miss Cornell. I feel like I'm already talking weird. Well, so stop doing that. Just talk yeah, like you. No, I should start talking like that. Okay, so what is the purpose of Patriot Podcast, Dr. Steiger? So my sense, the way that you described it to me, is that you want to have a place where two people who have their own opinions and their own ideas can talk about things, maybe important things, maybe trivial things, um, but can show that the two people can have conversations and talk through really interesting things together and provide models for our community of what it looks like to talk. Yeah. And I think it's a, an, an important way to build a community. Um, and as we, as we rebound from whatever 2020 is, is doing to our, our educational system in general, and our community specifically. Um, I think we have to be really intentional about how we rebuild bridges um, and, and how we really plot our course forward because there's so much division to be had, there's so much offense to be had, and there's so much disagreement to be had um, that I feel like this podcast is a great way for us to kind of model how to dig through some, some tougher conversations. Um, for, for better and for worse. Although, as, as we've been talking, I don't know that we've disagreed about anything yet. I'm sure we will. I'm, I'm sure we'll find something. I'm sure we will. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you started teaching, how you got into teaching? Yeah, so I, I tell this story a lot to my students because I think um, for, for my students who often have these ideas when they're 11th graders, like I know how the rest of my life is gonna unfold. Um, and I, I'm really set. I, I like to tell my story, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah. I like to tell my story because it, it didn't unfold in a straight line. You know, mm -hmm. I, I went to college thinking I was going to go into international business or something. And then, you know, that immediately was not it. Um, but I didn't know exactly where I was going to land. And, um, I think part of the thing was that, that when I was in college, I started meeting these professors and realizing that that felt like a really cool thing to do, to go and be in these classes and to read books and to talk about ideas. And that, that seemed like something that'd be really fun. And so I decided then that I thought I wanted to be a college professor. And so for the next, oh gosh, 12, 13 years of my life, I was focused, 15 years even, I was focused on becoming a college professor. And that meant um, getting a college degree, going to graduate school, getting a PhD, doing research, all of the things that, that somebody does for that. Was and there finished? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just, I'm interested in the story. Was there a specific moment or a specific teacher where you were like, oh, I've been, I, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be like that. Yeah. It, it was a poli sci professor and his name was Sid Olus. Um, and and I don't even know what it was. I think it was just the way that he talked about things. And, and to be totally honest, it might have even been a conversation about making raw cookie dough. Mm. Um, and it was a, it was a, a freshman um, interdisciplinary class. And for some reason, he was talking to us about the transition to college and things. And, and I just remember this thing about raw cookie dough being this thing for him. Um, as there was just something about the way he engaged with questions mm. that anything it, there was no tangent that was too tangential yeah. to spend time with 
Yeah. And, and he had this way of bringing everything back at some point. I was like, that is such a cool thing. Um, right. I love this gig. And so, you know, I think that was it. And then, like I say, then I spent the next 15 years working in that direction. And I finished graduate school. I had a son um, and I was in the middle of a pandemic or not a pandemic. I was in the middle of an economic crisis. Mm. Sorry, pandemic's on the brain. I was in the middle of an economic crisis, right? The, the financial crisis of 2008 had happened. And the lag into academia um, was the, the recovery hadn't happened in academia. They weren't hiring. And so for years, people had finished PhDs without jobs, mm-hmm. um, without new jobs available. And so there was this lot of people sitting around and yeah. they're not hiring. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a year on the job market and thought about it. And, and finally, we were moving from one apartment to another and it was Christmas day and we were packing and we had decided that we weren't going to move from this apart- one apartment to the other until we were going to spend Christmas in our, in our one apartment and then move over to the other. We weren't excited about it. We just had to. And, I, and it hit me that the reason that I was, I was having to do this is because I was holding on to this dream of being a college professor. Mm. And maybe if I thought a little differently about the things that I could do, um, that it would change things. Like that I... You know, we'd yeah. be freer to, to do things differently. How hard so was it at that point that dream? You know, it came in waves. There were times when it was desperately hard and it was it felt like a, an utter failure. And there were other times when I just realized, no, I was doing I was doing exactly what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I think from the time that I, I landed at Viewpoint um, on, I've just felt super confident that I had made the made the right choice. Nice. I, I had, I was doing so many of the things that I'd always imagined doing, mm-hmm. um, but I was doing them just in a different context and yeah. with students that I got to know better. That's also, cause I was just about to, I was saying like, in a lot of ways, teaching in independent schools is like teaching in college. Yeah. In a very, there, there are some, some parallels to be drawn. Right. And I think the stuff that I loved about the idea of teaching as a college professor um, fit really well with the independent school classroom. Um, and without some of the baggage that I would have had to deal with as a college professor, there's different baggage, but it's, you know, it's, it's been, it's been great. That's a good place to go. So what are some of those things? What are some of the things that you love about, uh, teaching in an independent school? And I'll give you some of my, yeah. So I want to hear your teaching story too. Um, so let me just say a couple of things. One of the things I love about teaching in an independent school um, especially compared to teaching college, which I did as an adjunct, um, mm-hmm. is that I get to know the students so much better, right? I know the kids from the beginning of a school year in August, if I didn't know them before, yeah. right? And I'm going to know them all the way through June, right? And so, you know, that's a lot of time. It's a lot of growth. And it's seeing them, you know, when we're on campus, at least, we're seeing them every day. Right. Um, and, and you're seeing them in highs, you're seeing them in lows, you're seeing them, you know, in so many different ways. Right. And so by the end of the year, you've really made connections. I think about this every year when I'm writing letters of recommendation, because I haven't yet gotten to know the new year's students quite as well as I knew the last years. And right. every year there's this point where I'm like, am I ever going to know this year's students as well as I knew this group that I'm writing letters for? Yeah, I get that. Um, and so, and, but it happens every year. And so, you know, it's, it's such a fun experience just getting to know the kids so well. So that's, I think that's probably the number one is just getting to know them so well, getting to feel like 
you're you're working closely with people who get what they're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. not everybody loves eleventh grade history, um, right. and that's fine. But at least they see there's a point to it. Right, right. And those relationships are huge. I remember after uh, last year's graduation, or no, maybe it was two years. Ago. I don't remember when it was. But after graduations, I'm notoriously like a little emotional. I just I can't really take it because I don't know. I'm saying goodbye to people that I just spent so much time building relationships with, and we're not even friends. <laughs> like we're we're friendly, but if I call you a friend, like it's a problem and to some extent. So um, that's that's definitely well said. Well said, Dr. Steiger. Thank you. So tell us your story. How did you, how, why are you doing this? So I never wanted to be a teacher. Like at no point while I was in school did it come up. Um, My mother has been a teacher all my life, right? So in elementary school, she was actually my school dean. And from K through fifth grade, anything I did, whatever teacher I had would say, oh, I'm going to tell your mother. And only really only one teacher, my third grade teacher really used it against me. Um, I, she had something against me that I couldn't fathom. I don't know why. You, ne- you of course, did not deserve it. I didn't deserve it. Was of course, no, of course. Loving guy. But I, I did learn, uh, because my mother was in the school, I learned a lot about the relationships of student to teacher. And, and when I really think back, back to it, that's where it started. Because from then, I also saw the systems of school and I hated it because I was in a public school as in in elementary school and public school for junior high school. And then once I hit ninth grade, I was good enough at football to make it into uh, the private school in Brooklyn, one of the private schools in Brooklyn. And because my mother is a teacher this whole time, I'm seeing how much, how much outside forces dictate what's going on in the classroom. And I remember vividly as a student, like thinking, this doesn't matter. And I don't, I don't care about this. And, and this isn't really representing who I am. And so why should I care? And when you're, when you're in school with that kind of mindset, it's easy to find a lot of other people who have similar mindsets and aren't doing anything. So then I get to uh, uh, private school in high school and I was just a football player and I loved it. And I started defining myself as a football player, which takes me all the way up through college. Um, and football wasn't going the way I wanted it to go, right? It, it started breaking my heart because things were happening with coaches and, and uh, the guy who recruited me actually left as I came, right? So, so he had this whole plan for me to be one thing. And then I get dumped off into the hands of this other person who had no vision for me and who, who didn't really, who didn't recruit me. So he didn't have any stock in my, uh, my success. Um, but I always loved English class. Like even, even throughout high school, even throughout uh, junior high school, because it was the one class where I had a voice and it was the one class where no matter what, if I can, if I can relate it to what I saw in the book, you can't tell me I'm wrong. We can argue about it. We can have a debate about it, but you can't tell me I'm wrong unless, unless F. Scott Fitzgerald walks in here and says, Hey, no, yes. Right. Then we're just two people with an opinion. And I love that. And so 
that love for English carried me into uh, writing in college. And my writing teachers and my English teachers were always my favorite teachers. And uh, when I stopped playing football, this guy named Dick Flood came to the school and gave me his card. And he was like, uh, so can you, can you, do you want to coach and, and live in a dorm and uh, support kids in that way? I said, yeah, absolutely. Can you teach? Eh, I don't know about that. Um, and so I started teaching at a boarding school and the rest is history because I, I loved it from the second I, I walked in. Um, and really, really it was those relationships that, that I, I started to build because my first year teaching, this is actually a funny story. My first year teaching, I'm 21. I might have just turned 21, so I might have been 20 really. But I was teaching at a, a school that had PGs. And so at my school, you could legitimately, I had, I had a 20 year old who was in my class. I'm closer in age to the students that I'm teaching than any of the people that I'm working with. And so it was, it was this weird dynamic where I had to figure out how to be a teacher and not be Jacob, right? right. Not, be, not be like just, just having fun in class, even though that first year, a lot of those days were just having fun in class. So right. it, it was good. Yep. It's, it's such a funny thing that you, like, it's such a funny ending to the story because, you know, when I started teaching, I was in my 30s. Mm -hmm. I had a PhD. Mm -hmm. I had a kid. Um, the second one was on his way. And so, you know, like I felt like I was able to have a lot of fun in class because I came with all these markers to, to show this gap between myself and the students. Yeah. Right. And so I could come in and I thought they were they were, you know, just riotously fun um the students would probably disagree but um you know i it i i felt more relaxed in the classroom because i had all these things that separated me from students so i didn't really worry that we were being you know, buddies i i could i could just be myself and i could i could tell jokes and i could be funny with history and it was easier because of all of those things See, the, it's it's almost the exact opposite because I never had a day where I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm being too friendly for them. Like, like now I've gotten to a point where I'm. That's kind of who I am at this point, right? I'm right. I'm the teacher. I'm gonna make jokes in class. If you if you say something funny, we're gonna talk about it, and then we right. can move on because it's part of the lesson. Like now I understand it a little bit differently, but before, ah, I just gotta go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's such a funny thing. Um, how has, so how does your story influence your teaching philosophy? So, yeah, I, I actually, I thought a lot since we, we chatted about this beforehand, I was thinking I was going to go back and find the teaching philosophy that I wrote when I got this job. And, and mm -hmm. I didn't because that was too much work, but, um, you know, I, I know that I've always been focused as a, as a teacher, my teaching philosophy has always been based on this fundamental idea of curiosity. Right, that the trying to encourage students to build skills and critical thinking and all those things that we sort of have to say, but it really is about this curiosity and encouraging them to want to ask questions and want to understand something about the world around them, and then giving them the skills to channel that curiosity into something that's going to feel meaningful and relevant. Yeah. Um, and I think you know it's it's partly my own story of of being curious and wanting to know and recognizing that you know, in the world of academia, you can be interested in anything, 
I mean, anything. I knew, I knew somebody who wrote her master's thesis on toilets and mm. toilet design. I mean, she was, she was doing museums and, and um, yeah, it was the design of toilet, which oh. seems utterly bizarre to me. But I mean, and that's the thing with academia is that you have to be super specific. And so you, and it's going to sustain you for years of research. So it better be something that interests you. Very true. That, and that's so important to find that question. Exactly. And so trying to encourage students to, to not shut off their curiosities, not shut off the things that really do motivate them, but to, to start there mm -hmm. and then to build around that the kinds of skills of, of question making and research that you need to better understand that thing. Yeah. And, and it's never been about creating future history majors. It's never been about um, trying to get people to do what I do. If, yeah. if somebody wants to, that's great, but it's just about um, helping them realize that the skills that they can learn from my classes are translatable to other things um, as long as they're starting from a place of genuine curiosity and interest. Nice. How does that, how does that play out day to day? How do you build that into everything you do? You know, pre-pandemic, it was, you know, I guess in a way that's channeling Sid Olaf's um, is kind of following that tangent. Let, let people ask these questions that might feel off the wall. And then I know that it's my job to help bring that back somehow in the conversation back to a place where we can launch back into whatever the lesson yeah. of the day is supposed to be. Um, and, and trusting that there's this web of connections. You can call it relationships, you can call it, you know, whatever, but you're going to be able to bring it back if you can take a wide enough view and are willing to trust this, this stone steps to this stone steps to this stone. And we're going to be able to get back to the place that we need to go. And you've just brought in this person who was starting way off in left field and now you've brought them back into the game. Yeah. I see. I, I love that. I, and to me, my best classes come when we're talking about the book, five, 10 minutes before anybody in the class realizes it. And they all start having these moments where it's like, hold on, I kind of, that reminds me of something. And I'm like, yeah, it's almost like somebody right. planned out this conversation from the beginning. Right. <laughs> and it's, I, playing Wizard of Oz that way almost, yeah. Yeah, I, I have these moments where, um, you know, it, it feels serendipitous, right? Like you're just talking and talking and talking and, and all of a sudden somebody makes the connection. Sometimes they make it before I do, but they, then they'll look at me with this accusing face and they'll be like, you planned this, didn't you? I'm like, of course I did. I'm not going to tell you that this just happened by accident. Of course I planned it. I just teed it up. Right. But you know, what's funny. I always find that when I'm trying too hard to control that happening, I always lose it Yeah, because the second so in my class, to me, well, I'll back up, give you, give you my philosophy as well. To me, experience is the best teacher, right? And so immediately I'm at a disadvantage because I'm trying to teach. When in reality, the best way that you're going to learn something is by going in and knocking your head into a wall until you realize, oh, there's a better way to do this, right? <laughs> However, that's not efficient. In, in, in a perfect world, I would be able to tell you exactly what you're going to, to come up against. And you would say, oh, okay, I understand that. And I'm going to go do that. Except for that's never how it works. Everybody I've ever known who's ever been burned by anything has been told, hey, that thing is hot. Don't 
touch it. And then you touch <laughs> it. As a, as a grown man, I still get burns on my tongue because I try to drink my tea too fast. So experience being the best teacher means that I'm always trying to get my, my students to have their own experience in class and to, to really grapple with their own thoughts. Now, the second I, I leave room for, for explanation and I'm not listening to it, then I'm taking myself out of it. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not moving towards that goal and that, that aha moment that I'm always looking for. When I can calm myself down and really just listen and really be interested in, to, in whatever random story my kid is telling me, there's always a moment in there that you can find and that you can press and that will lead you back to something, something of value or at least something super interesting. Some, some right. kids just have great stories. Um, right. And so I'm always, I'm always looking for those moments. Yeah. You know, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about that aha moment. And, and I, I have a few that just jump out at me. It's like, oh, yeah, that, that was when I really felt like a good teacher. Mm -hmm. but, but I've also had this kind of realization in, in my life. Um, and this comes from, like, it's actually a weird little research tangent from, from life before going on for my PhD when I was a master's student. And I, I did this museum studies program, and we were, we were um, researching like, the impact of programming at, at museums. Mm -hmm. And so they did these studies, right, where they would, they would interview people. Um, they would do surveys, right, as they left the museum. What did you get out of this? What did you learn? And then they would do it like a week later, and then they would do it six months later, right? And then they would compare. What did people report that they learned at these three different stages? Right. And one of the things that was really interesting was that six months later, the lessons that they had learned from the museum, the things that stuck with them, were not the things that were resonating with them the day of or a week later. It was something else that had gotten in there. Yeah. There was this little seed that got planted and then something else reinforced and something else reinforced and something else reinforced. And I've always known that since I've entered the classroom as a, as a teacher, that just because there's the aha moment in the classroom doesn't mean that that's the lesson, right? That's the thing that the kid is going to get out of it, that the student is going to get, that's going to linger with them. And so I have just thought of myself as the seed planter, right? Like I'm putting these ideas in there. Um, some of them are going to stick. Some of them are going to start to germinate. Some of them are going to be gone and that's okay too. Right. Um, and they may not even know someday, it may be years later, they may not know why that thing suddenly feels familiar, why, why this experience they have, they have some experience or something in their head to put it up against and say, okay, I understand what this is, I can make my way through it. Yeah. Um, and, and as a teacher, that can be really frustrating because I'm fed emotionally and spiritually by those aha moments. You see them light up in class and you see that the connection was made. Right. And, and knowing that so many of them may happen years later and they can't even quite place where it came from. Mm -hmm. And that's such a fundamental part of my job too. Yeah, but you've been teaching long enough to, you've had some of those kids reach back out to you when they're Sometimes. in college or whatever. And they're like, oh, Sometimes. I gotta remember it. How, See, how many of your high school teachers have you reached back to and told about <laughs> how much you got out of their class? Exactly one. Exactly one. And she was actually my third grade teacher. Yeah. Uh, the third grade teacher before the one that was mean to me. Um, yeah. But exactly one. But, and I, I get that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody reaches out. But at the same time, like, I'm always thinking about 
or, or that leads back to relationships, bro, right? Because as a teacher, I'm always thinking, I don't want to say something off the cuff or I don't want to do something that is going to stick with that kid and cause a negative impact. Right. I'm always trying to plant those seeds. I'm always trying to give them something that uh, is just interesting enough for them to ask a question about it later. But I never want to make some type of joke at anybody's expense or, or say something just ignorant that they hold on to and they say, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Right. And, and I don't, I don't even like English because my ninth grade English teacher, he was, he was kind of a jerk. And that's, that happens to a lot of people. A lot of people don't like school because the wrong teacher said the wrong thing at the right time, um, which is all past. Um, in that relationship, in that relationship that you're trying to build with your students, right? How do you go about that? So, I mean, the two things that I think are most important for me is one, um, to really be authentic as much as I can. I mean, like we have multiple selves, right? All the time, yeah. right? There's, there's Dr. Steiger, right? Then there's Eric, there's dad, you know, I'm, I'm a lot of different people. Yeah. Um, and so to the extent that I can, I want to be as authentically Dr. Steiger as I can when I'm in that classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to be real. Um, and just as important. The second thing is being open to them being who they are mm. um, and giving them space. And, and this is really hard, I think, for, for adolescents. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard for anybody, but it's, it's hard for adolescents because there's, there's so much going on. There's so much loaded into the performative aspect of school. And it's not just about grades, although it is about grades and it's not just about college, but it is about college. And it's not just about your social life, but it is about your social life. And, and there's so many things going on that these students are weighing all the time, consciously or unconsciously. Right. And so the way that they can engage in class, um, there, there are just so many influences on their ability to bring themselves, to be authentic, to be curious, to be engaged. Right. You know, and and to recognize that not everybody's going to be there all the time, mm -hmm. um, but to be open when they're there, right? right? And and to to help see it and to to grab it because I think the the worst thing I could do, sort of thinking about your like turning somebody off, the worst thing I could do is to slap somebody down when they finally step up to put themselves out there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and so you know to be open to the possibility that. You know, I don't know when it's going to come, but hopefully they're all going to they're all going to present themselves. They're all going to present something that that is a genuine curiosity for themselves, and to be open enough and to be respectful enough mm -hmm. that I'm ready to to nurture that when it comes out. Right, right, and and it, it seems like you have to be uh, cautious of your response, of your immediate response. Yeah. And, and I often say, and, and this is part of being authentically me, like I often lead with the joke response to things, mm -hmm. right? That, that I do, I like humor, I need humor, I need to be funny in, in this, um, this Zoom-based world that we have. I like to say to them, guys, I'm way funnier in, in person than I seem right now. Like, it's just harder to be funny on Zoom. Yes. Um, but but it, it's still, you know, I, I think 
you have to be able to, especially in history, U.S. history, there's, there can be so much tragedy, there can be so much trauma, right? We have to find ways to laugh at things. We have to find the absurd and be able to like, laugh about the absurd yeah. um, so that we can then steel ourselves up for the real work. Um, and so like to figure out how to make fun of myself and to, to model that in such a way that hopefully my intent is to be disarming, but we all know that impact and intent don't always line up the way we want them to. So, you know, to, to try to be disarming enough in my self-effacing mm -hmm. so that we can, we can all engage together. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always risky. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's something that we model and in as much as we can, we try to give, give to them as well, because every time something comes up and just like you were saying, I would hate for a kid to finally ask a question and you're like, no, that was a stupid question. Ah, that's a, that's a terrible reaction. And it's like, I'm, I'm always in a, in a position where I have to think, okay, how, how am I responding to this? Like, where does this land from my perspective? Is it just so foreign to me that I've never heard it before and therefore it sounds ridiculous? And, and if that's the case, well, it's familiar to them. And so there I, I and I've, I made a conscious decision to do this a long time ago, but now it's, now it's uh, for better or worse, just something I do. I'm genuinely interested in, in whatever the heck that came from and like where it came from. And if you're sitting in the same space that I am and you came up with that story that I never even conceived of, what's the connection there? Because there's, that means that there's something about this familiar topic that I have no idea about. And when that happens in class, that's super interesting to me because that's a time where I can kind of take off the, the magical teacher hat and place it on one of my students and say, okay, so tell us more about this. Because that's where, that's where, uh, so my, my master's degree is in uh, teacher leadership and we did a lot of culturally responsive teaching and culturally responsive pedagogy. The best, the best advice I ever give about how to be culturally responsive in your classroom is let your students teach what they know, right? They know so much, it's just giving them permission to tap into it themselves and giving them permission and license to say, Oh, I can be the authority on something. I can, I can be knowledgeable about something and I can still not know everything about it, right? And so how they deal with the uncertainties of not knowing certain things and how we can model how to grow through those uncertainties and still hold on to what we have, that, to me, that's, that's a good class right there. <laughs> I, I wonder if it's easier for you to sell that in an English class than it is in a history class because of the way students, the assumptions students have. I mean, that I guess what behind my question is this, this idea that there's some sort of objective truth that is like underlying history in a way that, you know, there's no F, F. Scott Fitzgerald, right? Who's gonna come into your English class. So anything that you wanna say, you can say. Right, um, but so that relates to, to my teaching journey. I don't wanna teach anything but English. Like, right. That's the, that's the only thing that I want to teach because that's the only thing that makes sense to me that way and has all that leeway. 
right? Sure. When I see when I see an English lesson plan, I'm like, oh my gosh, this can go anywhere. I might not get to half of this stuff, but we're going to get somewhere beneficial because we're just going to dig through what we each have until we find gold. But the funny thing is, I actually feel the same way about history, right? Yeah. Because I'm I'm comfortable enough with history and and what like my my sense of of the complexities of history that that I'm not all that interested in them knowing the object, the objective stuff is so basic, right? Like I, that's not the stuff that's interesting to me. It, as soon as you start asking questions of how and why, all of a sudden you've introduced so much complexity and so much uncertainty yeah. um, that, that it's exactly the same, right? That we can't ever know for sure, right? People are always asking me like, what did he really think? I'm, I have no idea what he really thought. Yeah. That's not my job. I can tell you what he wrote. I can tell you what he did. I can't tell you what he thought. Yeah. And so I yeah. can't I can't tell you with absolute certainty why he did what he did mm-hmm. or she did what she did. Right. I can give you some really good interpretations based on evidence that's available. Yeah. Yeah. I can find it in I can find it in some books. I can put these alongside each other. And then we can then have some interesting conversations about how and why that might be a reasonable conclusion. See, and I like that because you're building in the existence of blind spots and sure. we can't get rid of blind spots. We, we all have them. If anybody's learning to drive, you know that a big truck can hide in your blind spot at the wrong time. And if you're not checking your blind spot, you're going to hit that truck. And so to, to, to really emphasize how to dig through the uncertainties, one, and the unknowns of whatever the heck we're talking about is really the purpose behind this whole podcast uh, uh, project that we're, we're heading out on. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about it. I am too. I'm excited. And, and I think that through these conversations and and we'll have plenty of guests on here so it's not just uh two cisgendered men talking about whatever the heck we talk about we'll we'll get some other voices on here but uh i think it'll be great to continue to find the blind spots in our community so that we can shed light on them so that we can grow into being a, a truly inclusive community i hope so yeah i hope so, I hope so as well um, any final thoughts before we close off this episode zero? I, I think we've been talking enough. <laughs> we, got, we got to save something for next time. I love it. We will save something for next time. Stay tuned. <laughs>